I'm Nave Avimore with Distance. And I'm panicked about bikes. Hello, Howard. Who Newt. <laughs> That's who me. The subject for today is no one corrects me when I say a foreigner's name wrong. Okay. I don't know what it is about foreigners. Um, they have strange sounding names. Like people me. call you Nut, and I always have to go, it's, or Newt, and I go, it's Canute. Yeah. I just think that hard K is hard at the beginning. Of course it is. Unless it's with the C, Canuck. So I think if your name was C-N-U-T- People would say Canute. Yeah, probably. All right. Well, I think in America, your driver's license should say CNUT. Can you imagine cops pulling over going, what's the fucking smart ass with your CNUT? <laughs> yeah. God, I, I, could do, I could be so much funnier with your name. Oh, yes. I mean, Howard's so plain. Howard's so wouldn't commit fraud. Yeah, I mean, you don't have a lot to work with with yeah, Howard. There's never been a Howard that committed fraud. There's Howard Hughes, didn't cut his nails, peed in bottles. I miss that movie. That was a great movie. You remember the Howard Hughes movie? I oh, no, I can't. You would that. love it. He crashed a plane. Speaking of crashing, uh, what a segue. Ooh. Today, we're going deep into a subject that, uh, well, the only thing I really do other than work is biking, cycling. I don't know if it's biking or cycling, but I love to cycle. My friend cycled, I'm trying to think when I really got into it. In the 90s, um, uh, doing triathlons with my buddies in Toronto after uh, college, uh, the Bud Light Tour. So I got into triathlons. Then I gave it up because you have kids and you put on 20, 30 pounds (laughs) and you settle in (laughs) to a death. The death march, as I would call it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you cycling in, uh, in, in during college. Yeah, but I was thin. Well, we can eat and drink I was anything suntan. back then. Man, I was, I was skinny. My nickname was Bones uh, back in those days, remember? <laughs> oh, life was good. It's been so long since you've fit that name, so you know it's hard to tell. Sorry. Then, are you done? And then my friend Michael Kinsbergen, who I need to have on the show, ran EX. A soccer team, really good friend in LP, and we met just uh, in a speaking engagement in Amsterdam many years ago. Uh, he dared me. He kind of just said, Howard, come to, I was a peak Howie town. I was like 208. I remember I'm in Hong Kong, and it was like 30 days <laughs> before I had to go to the Alps. So I had to go back from Hong Kong to Phoenix, probably. And I was like, fuck, 30 days, I, I really need to start. Like, I didn't have any idea of, like, what climbing the Alps would be. <laughs> right. And um, maybe we won't have time for the guests, but this is a good story. The, um, so I'm, like, on a, like, there was no Peloton. I was just on some bike pedaling. It was mm-hmm. so humid. And I was just on some bike looking at mountains in Hong Kong. And, you know, it was like 30 days to go before I'd be in the Alps. And I was just like... I didn't know they planned to just kill a Jew in the Alps. I didn't like, I don't know why I said yes to this thing, but I was now dared to go to the Alps. And 30 days later, um, and I had biked so much at a younger age that it was not like 
that I didn't know how to bike. It was just like nothing could prepare me for uh, a June snowstorm uh, in Davos, climbing out of Davos oh into the God. Alps. Yeah, and a few days later doing Stelvio. Uh, which I just did again this summer in two hours less than I did it the first time. Oh, so, so I survived and I had the buck. Okay, and I was probably, I got myself down to about uh, 192 at the end of that thing. And then I got, now I'm about 185 to 188. It's hard for me to get lower, but I love biking. I don't know where we're going with this, but I love biking. Um, and then I discovered, I think one day walking and so I discovered this brand, Rafa. And it was like, a coffee shop meets a retailer meets um, Lulu. And, you know, as an affinity, I just started wearing, you know, I gave up Lulu and I just started wearing, even though I'm not a cyclist, I just started wearing the Rafa brand. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just became enamored. I finally had a brand that spoke to, you know, me, culture, uh, Soho, uh, you know, hip, uh, overpriced. And <laughs> it spoke and, to you. And no one knew what it was. And I'm like wearing this brand forever. And slowly everybody's like, oh, Rafa, Rafa, Rafa. And, you know, went to the original. You know, I'm a brand guy and I'm a sucker. You're a trend I'm a sucker for overpaying. No, I'm not. I didn't start Rafa. I'm, I'm a trend follower. But um, now they're owned by Walmart. Long story short, Walmart bought them. The, the two, so you're, you really don't know the story, obviously. But so the brothers and, and Nave, who's our guest, will, will correct me on this maybe, but because he knows the brand, um, the the Walmart sons are cyclists. And they've built hundreds of miles of cycling thing behind the in wherever Omaha, wherever the headquarters is in, mm-hmm. of Walmart. And they bought the brand for like $150 million. Oh, wow. And I'm like, I don't want to wear Walmart stuff when I cycle now. Uh, no. no, no, no. I mean, what do I do? Cycle over to Walmart and say, welcome to Walmart? I, I'm not worried. Rafa now might as well just say dollar sign WMT on it. So it's weird, but but it's not their fault. Like the brothers love cycling and they bought this brand. Yeah. So for a while, I'm like, why isn't there, there must be hundreds of other, you know, cool cycling brands, overpriced cycling brands that I too now would wear instead of Rafa, where I spend ten to $20,000 a year and hundreds of thousands of uh, elites or, or stupid people, uh, as we call them, Go and and instead of Lulu, buy Rafa. Right. So, you know, it bothered me because it was so well executed as a brand. You know, the coffee store, the ambiance, the the e-commerce. I mean, sorry. Genius. genius. The Walmart brand degrades it. I'm sorry. To me, it's the same product. But also, I want to experiment. So anyways, I get a cold call. I think it was like uh, about a year and a half ago. Sorry, cold email from uh, our guest, Nave, and his wife, Sharona. And they want to build kind of like a uh, what I, in my head, was a far fetch of cycling. Aggregate all the brands that you have never discovered, mm-hmm. California and Europe, aggregate them onto uh, one site so I can distrust their curation right. and buy everybody's overpriced cycling gear. Uh, so, so aggregate the elites and stupid people. Uh, that overpay, that just want to wear the best and try out different high-end fashion. Like, find your next brand. Long story short, uh, we kind of uh, preceded, you know, it was, it was, you know, the era of uh, overpriced startups. And, and to their credit, Nave and Sharona, we, we hit it off after the cold email we met in San Diego, flew out, and we did their pre-seed deal. And now the site is launched. Oh, nice. And it, the brand is called Distance, uh, but I'm probably saying it wrong. 
but it's D-S-T-N-C, and as a Nancy C.com. So distance without the vowels. And they've done a phenomenal job over the last eight months building out this beautiful media slash high-end aggregation e-commerce site with all the best, what I think, I mean, they're curating for me. I know, and, and we'll get into the Nave was a professional cyclist in Israel. He weighs like 11 pounds. Uh, <laughs> whenever I see him, I'm worried that he'll break. And uh, we haven't ridden together. We've just, because he kind of doesn't ride that much. And I live in Phoenix and he lives up in the Valley. But uh, I want to have him on now that the uh, site is launched. And uh, we're out raising uh, their seed round and have them talk about, you know, the the journey to building this brand with his wife. Uh, they spent some time in China. Uh, obviously, like I said, they grew up in Israel and now living in San Francisco. And they're doing, like, kind of building the next version of what, uh, helping all these brands, act, you know, build their market. Sweet. So, uh, ready to get them on the phone? Or do we have time? Uh, we might have about seven minutes left for him, yeah. <laughs> it's my podcast. This could go <laughs> on. This could be like the Ten Commandments. This could be like three hours. This is our he, Joe Rogan He's episode. here. He's on, and he is ready. Hello, hello. Nave. Nave, yeah. It's actually Nave. And how do you pronounce your last name, since I probably butchered that for a year? <laughs> it's Avi Moore. You spell it A-V-I-M-O-R. And is that French, or is that Israeli? Avi Moore is Israeli. It's the Hebrew meaning. So my dad is originally was born in Germany. When he moved to Israel, um, he changed the name. The original name was like Stasberg or something like that. So he wanted like a Hebrew name. And so that's how we uh, ended up with Avimor. So you grew up in Israel? Yep. Grew up in Israel. And uh, when did you get into cycling? So... Got into cycling when I was actually 12, or even a little bit before, but um, I started racing when I was 12. I actually started when I was really young, started uh, playing basketball. Then um, my aunt and her husband uh, were big cyclists uh, since the 80s. So they lived in the south of Israel. In near Beersheba, so it's a kind of like a desert landscape. And I used to go there every summer, basically with my bike, and used to ride with them. Um, and I was stoked just by you know going out in the nature and uh, and riding mountain bikes. So I started with mountain bike. That's how everybody started in Israel. And yeah, and when I was twelve, I got my first uh, road bike and started to race. Left uh, basketball, and you know. The rest is history. Now in Israel, do they do mountain bikes come with machine gun turrets just because of where you're where the land is situated? And not really, but <laughs> that would be I frowned remember, upon. I actually remember training. It was one of the wars, one of them. Um, and they were shooting missiles on the area where we lived. And I remember actually trying to find the best place to train where there is a zero possibility they will actually aim to that direction because there is no one, no one lived there. So it's like they probably want to kill people. So I'll go and ride and try to train where it's like, you know, in the wilderness, nothing's going to happen. And yeah, I remember that. I remember also like hiding, hearing the, um, the siren and hiding in a gas station. And so you did your, you did your uh, military service. Yeah. And when did you meet Sharona? 
So I met Sharona back in 28. She's going to kill me. 28 or 29. I moved to Tel Aviv. Sharona comes from a PR background. So and then she got an offer to move to China for this uh, wholesale uh, fashion company. And we're actually, we wanted to move to the U.S. And we said, okay, so let's first go to China, see what's going on, maybe start a business there at a certain point, and then move to the U.S. Um, so that, that's how we ended up in China. And what city did you guys live in? We lived in uh, Shanghai, and um, we moved to Shenzhen. Shenzhen is a nice Relatively new city, but big. It's about, I don't know, like 13 million uh, people. That's considered like a medium city in China. Yeah. And Shanghai is the best, though. Shanghai is one of the best cities in the world. It's actually, if it was up to me, I would move to Shanghai. And what did you like about it? Shanghai, it's beautiful. It's like, it's a mix. First of all, it's it's a very cosmopolitan city. There's a mixture of uh, cultures. There is this old traditional China that has some European flair to it. Um, But on the other hand, it feels like, not that I lived in New York in the 70s, but it feels like New York in the 70s. The pace, everything is new, the energy outside, and the people. I think like the people was one of the best things that I liked about Shanghai. Mostly foreigners, when you meet them, they have like so special stories. Like, you know, if you end up living in Shanghai, you probably have a, a, you know, interesting story to tell or what you're doing there. So, you know, really unique kind of people. That's like really what attracted me the most. And so in Israel, when did you get discovered to be on the Israeli cycling team? How does that work? Is there, are we the only person on the team? And how many people were named Moses? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of questions, so just start out. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I don't know anyone personally that's called Moses. <laughs> but that's just me. Um, yeah, so the cycling team, the Israeli cycling team that you know from yeah. these days, is a relatively new team. So it's, it's actually started as an initiative. It was called Israeli Cycling Academy which was supposed mm-hmm. like they had one goal is to bring Israeli cyclists to um, and to the top of the industry, basically to race in the Tour de France or race in the Giro, one of the grand tours. So put Israel oh. on the map in terms of like professional cycling. Yeah. So it started as a, what's called a cycling academy, which is a kind of like um, a club. A, a, yeah. It's kind of like a club, a development team. It happens. It's something that happens a lot in Europe. You have development teams and then you have the actual pro team. Uh, well, also in soccer, it's the same. Um, so they started with this uh, cycling academy and then they got the um, a pro tour license from Katusha, which was a Russian team that retired. Um, that was, I think, four or five, even six years ago. And then they started to race basically in the Pro Tour. So as you know, Pro Tours is like the equivalent to the Champions League. You have 12 teams mm-hmm. and each year and the last two teams are going, they're going down from the Pro Tour. And one moves up. And, yeah, and two moves up, two new ones moves up. So there is a Pro Tour and there is the Continental. 
And that's what defines the um, the Champions League from the um, from the other teams. And how was the Israeli team stacking up? Like, I mean, you have the perfect. I mean, I don't know if you always were like this, but you have that like cycling build, very lean and you know tall, but but not not a jockey small uh, so tall like i don't know you're five nine five ten yeah something like that 175 centimeters how much do you weigh right now even though you're not riding uh how do you know that i'm not riding well you're riding a little <laughs> but you because you, you told actually, me yeah you're right actually i'm not riding uh right now yeah. last time i um, went for a ride was like uh, three four weeks ago so how do you, how, you always had that build? Yeah, I always had that build. It's something that we called in cycling uh, uh, physical talent. It's, you're, it's just you're born with a physique. It's not something that you can now really develop at a later stage. Um, right. Like basketball, that you can develop your skill. You can stand and literally shoot all day and become a better shooter. Cycling, if you're not born with this physique, it's, it will be very hard for you to actually be a good cyclist. So there is like um, an optimal body for a cyclist, but also there is like different roles in cycling. So different bodies have like different roles in, in the race. You have sprinters, you have climbers, you have all-rounders like Lance Armstrong that can climb really well, but also do a time trial really strong. Um, so I was um, a climber because that's my physique. I'm not that tall, but I have long legs and I'm, I have a thin body and uh, really like not a lot of um, body fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it probably came natural for me. Um, it's not that I thought about it when I was like 12 or something. And have you ever done drugs with Lance? No, actually, that was my dream, is to actually do some drugs with Lance. That was my dream. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the uh, one must dream. So um, how many people were actually were on an Israeli cycling team? So just uh, to, um, and to put things in, uh, in order, I was not part of the Israeli Cycling uh, Academy. Okay. So they started actually a long way after I left Israel. Got it. Do you miss that lifestyle or you just moved to Shanghai and that was it? That was the uh, end of it. If you're asking if I missed the prime years as a professional cyclist, um, nope, not really. I think like one of the reasons that I actually left the sport as, as a pro was that I suffered a lot. Like that's part of cycling. You enjoy suffering. You, you learn how to enjoy the suffer. Yeah. But uh, for me, it added also when I moved to actually start to race in Europe, it added another dimension of like um, a lot of mental pressure. So suddenly from being like one of the best riders, suddenly you're just a domestique. Domestique is the rider that's um, doing all the work for the leaders. Right. So you're just a domestique and... And basically, there's a lot of internal politics. So you yeah, I've watched a Netflix show. It just sounds like a brutal life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so everybody wants to be the best. Everybody wants to prove. Everybody wants to. Everyone wants to race. And there's like you know the 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 team roster for the race. Sometimes like just six. Sometimes just eight. You have to be on that uh, roster for the team. Otherwise, you can't prove yourself. And right. and you need to prove yourself inside the team. So trainings and so on, and and really like climb your your way up. Um, so you know that's the mental pressure that existed. Also, um, you know, in hindsight, I went to the UK 
instead of going to Italy. Actually, it was my dream to live in Tuscany and, and you know, just drink my, my espresso in the morning and go out for a ride. Yeah. I'm the same way, man. Like, I discovered Tuscany not for the booze, but for the coffee and the... It's not super suffering, right? Especially the Tuscany. It's just suffering. It's maybe the best kind of riding suffering because every six kilometers you can just stop in a village or at the top of a of a small three five k hill mound whatever they you would call it in Tuscany and eat and and everybody it's just normal and they give respect there if you ride bikes in Italy you're like a hero yeah and so, you know I love and that. Uh, yeah it's 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 not different from me because wherever where I go I'm a hero but it's nice <laughs> it's nice to be a hero on a bike a fat guy on a bike the brand is called distance so tell me how this idea came about yeah we actually knew that we we're gonna do something um in the space of fashion meets activewear mm-hmm. we wanted to go into yoga and it's like uh at leisure or like something in the intersection but then we started to see like look at the market and it was like so crowded lululemon was doing like you know, they were phenomenal back then. And it was obvious to everyone at the beginning of the pandemic that probably all the shopping behavior is going to shift to something that's more valuable. People are not going to spend on, uh, you know, mass fashion and fast fashion and stuff. They're going to really invest money in, in things that are going to be valuable to their life. So new is definitely being in the fitness, sport, activewear space. That's the word uh, mm-hmm. to go. Um, but then um, I remember sitting with Sharona after I was like bragging for the whole year about like how the cycling industry is like stuck 10 years ago. All the websites are the same. It's like super developed, but, you know, retail is like really not where it should be these days. And I came from fashion e-commerce, which is probably most innovative industry in, in e-commerce yep. and had all these, you know, basic Things that are happening in e-commerce and fashion that are just, you know, that do not exist in, in cycling. So I was like bragging about it a lot, but never thought that we're actually going to end up doing something with cycling um, until we just saw uh, one day we spoke about it. And so it's like, wait a second, everything's like, there's no way to actually buy a, a premium cycling kit in the U.S. There's only Rafa. There's another brand that's called Map that is doing a great job. Yeah. And we see some other brands like Cafe du Cyclist that really have like a great massive community, but they're very local and you don't like if, if you meet someone that's wearing Cafe du Cyclist and it's like, there's no way to buy it in the US. Yep. You have to place an order, the ships from France. The size is incorrect, so you need to return it. The size is like, what are people in Paris? Like a triple XL is like, it doesn't get over my left nipple. <laughs> so, yeah. So, first of all, Europeans are, you know, much thinner than Americans. Um, also, the sizing standard is a little bit different. So, uh, uh, you, uh, uh, an American medium is like uh, uh, an extra large in Europe. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, sizing is a big issue. And I think like we started, so we started to look at the space. We started to like see what's going on in the industry, what's going on in the market. And it's like, what's the problem? Because there are so many good brands out there, 
that are really doing a great job in their local communities, from Germany to Australia. Australia, by the way, is one of the biggest markets in the world for cycling. They're big cyclists. One of the best cyclists in the world are actually. And what brand, what, is there, what brand do we carry that's uh, from? A, is there like a great brand? Yeah, Tata Mafia is actually from um, oh, from Australia. Did not know that. Thought that was California. I love uh, that. Yeah, they're, they're half of them are um, are based in 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 LA, but originally they're from Australia. Did not know that. Yep. So yeah. So we started to look like what's going on in the market. What what's missing? Like why? these great brands that are really doing great job in their local communities. And when you start to check them out, you see that they all follow like the same uh, best practices that Rafa actually did. So huh. if you look at Rafa, Rafa is actually a fashion brand that they just happen to Absolutely. operate in the cycling industry. Um, Got it. And they all follow like the best practices of Rafa, but but not really doing the shift of, of penetrating the US market. It's like, their channel is pretty much their direct-to-consumer channel. Uh, you can go on their website. You know, we have Shopify today, so all the websites look, you know, look modern and nice. But if you actually start and, and place order in cycling, you know, it's like cycling kits. Sizing is, is, is very crucial. Um, it's just impossible to, to buy cycling clothes. Definitely, if not a bib costs like 250 and you end up with a bib and jersey for like $500 and it just doesn't match, you need to return it to Europe. Um, it's very costly and it's just, you know, not a way to actually sell premium clothes. Right. And, you know, one of the best things that Rafa did is <laughs> penetrating the U.S. market by actually being present here. Uh, from brick and mortar stores to uh, to clubs um, uh, to have their all e-commerce operation based out of Portland. Now it's by the way it's Bentonville, Arkansas, and yep. that's where the Walmart is uh, uh, sits. Yep. Um, so all their operations was here in the U.S. and they were like operating like a, you know like a fashion e-commerce website or brand. So when you go, you order stuff from Rafa, it's free shipping over a certain amount, I think 75 or something, and you get it, you know, like five, six days, not, not the fastest, but, you know, it's pretty efficient because it's USPS, so we're used to it. And then if you need to return it, there's a shipping, there's a return label in the package, and you just return it and forget about it. They process the refund, you order, you exchange, whatever, it's, you know, it's like, like e-commerce should be. Yeah. And it's just not happening in, outside of the US, or there, there, these guys like they're not even aware that this is like basic and in addition to that most of the bike shops or i would say all the bike shops in in america have the same business model of the classic independent bike shop which is probably similar in to how a car agency works you know you have the workshop and you're selling cars yep. so you're selling bikes they're not really making a lot of money selling bikes because the profit margin is really low. And we're talking about it's like selling bikes, high-end bikes, the profit margin is about 20%. So you're selling bikes and you start to actually make profit when the customer comes into your, your workshop and start to do maintenance to the bike. And you're supposed to selling him all the accessories. So helmets, shoes, clothes, all the other stuff. That's how you actually yep. acquire the, the customer. Bit. Yeah. Yep. Um, but they are not built to actually operate an e-commerce fashion business. And we're, when we're talking about selling clothes and apparel, it's, it's fashion yep. at the end of the day. 
technology's finally come for the bike, right? Like, oh yeah, I hadn't heard the word gravel bike hmm. probably two years ago, and now um, it's funny. Um, and maybe if I heard it, I didn't know. I assumed that it wouldn't be for me, and now I don't know why I would use a road bike. Because, you know, at my age, I like the fat tire. Like if, if there was a tire the size of the Harley that worked on a, on my cycling frame, and now they've built this frame that makes me feel like I'm a road cyclist and I have, I feel five times safer on a gravel bike. Yeah. The industry definitely went through a big shift in the past, I'd say six, seven years where a lot of mites um, were basically exploded because, you know my era we used to uh put like 120 psi in our tires because jesus i went and got my gravel bike and they laughed at me because <laughs> I, 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 I had 80 90 and they were like dude this should be 40. yeah 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 that blew That's my like, mind yeah a lot has changed like we, we actually we were thought but that the more rigid um the tire is the faster you could go the faster it will be because there is less rolling resistance but mm -hmm. we actually learned in the past few years that when, fascinating that yeah, is like such a myth or as yeah, you would say might might meet i don't know but it's um it's newt it, <laughs> newt nave nave so so uh that is maybe one of the what's the other biggest myth that's blowing up about uh brakes right like the pros were like anti yeah the pros were anti the the disc brake so disc brake started um into mountain bikes about 20 years ago i think don't don't catch me on i the, think it's the greatest mm -hmm. one of the greatest inventions for somewhat Fear and safety. Yeah, it's well. It, it all comes from Formula One, first of all. Oh, it's like all okay. the technology that we have in cars these That's days, cool. from ABS to traction control to uh, hydraulic brakes. Everything comes from Formula One, right? Because they're pushing the the innovation. Hmm. So we had like um, a disc brakes came into uh, mountain bikes about twenty years ago, maybe more. Like don't remember, but. When they started, um, so the industry went through some kind of like um, a sleepy period where there's no much innovation in how they sell bikes. So, you know, bikes, it's two wheels, stem and a handlebar and maybe a saddle. Depends if you like it right. or not. But um, but there was no like extra innovation here so you you would buy a bike and here i'm like trying i'm a little bit criticizing the industry but you know on a positive note you know you had to find something to innovate to get people stoked about bikes and just replace the, the hobby of it yeah. they needed to create it a hobby and then you know how do you push the envelope you just you know let's let's bring these bricks into road bikes because this can literally change the entire industry but how do you put a disc brake on a, such a thin uh, wheel? Uh -huh. So you have to actually increase the rim, the width of the rim, then increase the, the, um, the width of the hub and basically build a much stronger wheel that can carry the massive power hmm. that the disc brake is, is putting on the wheel. Because if you put it on a very thin, you know, the classic uh, road wheel, it's probably going to break the wheel pretty fast. Didn't know that. Yeah. So... That's how they came up with um, disc brakes into road bikes. And yeah, there is this thing, you know, at the end of the day, when you're a pro cyclist and you are sponsored, 99% of what your, of your gear is sponsored, 
you don't really have a say if you want to ride with rim brakes or disc uh-huh. brakes. Didn't know that. I thought it was because of weight and because of speed. It's a combination of both. I did not make the. Um, I personally didn't make the move to disc brakes, just because I'm not willing to change my um, my cycling technique or my like the the riding experience. Huh. It's a little bit different. I know it's not like it's not massive, but I'm just I, I I feel more comfortable and confident with my rim brakes. I think my bikes look much better with rim brakes than um, than disc brakes, and it's kind of like uh, it's also I'm not gonna lie, but uh, I like when people see that I'm riding like a twenty thousand dollar bike with rim brakes, and they was like, "What?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yep." I would never notice, but yes. So a revolution has happened in biking, and it could just be because of global wealth. Mm-hmm. It could be because of free time. It could be... Social media. Oh, okay. Suddenly you see people going outside. And there was, there was like a research that I read about two years ago that they made about like what's causing people to get excited so much about seeing people right outside. And there's something about the fact that you see people have this like freedom of like rolling on two wheels with the wind outside and the nature and everything that's really attracts a lot of people to like i want to be in that situation i want to be there i want to do this i want to start to ride bikes um and i see it's like i see it a lot when i start to talk about bikes or like even like uh friends ask me what to buy and i'm like starting to recommend just uh you know friends that wants to commute and they start to see all these bikes and stuff and they get excited. And some of them like literally became, you know, big cyclists just because, you know, they were exposed to all this content on social media. Unbelievable. I did not know that. So you're positioned perfectly for the trend. Um, the reason I think this is interesting because I don't want to, like, I can't discover all this stuff. I need a tastemaker. I need a yep. curator. So where, what's the end game of this? I mean, for me, it's just a straight bet on the growth of, you know, road biking you know i don't know the mountain biking industry but i assume mountain biking but gravel biking and e-biking right this is a lifestyle so yeah e-bikes is uh definitely you know it's it's gonna be the number one electric vehicle in the world and some big brands are are doing great job in in e-bike um also in china and gravel is probably the um, i would say the best thing that happened to cycling i don't know um here's the thing gravel was here always like it's it's funny because we used to go i remember we used to climb when we were young you used to climb um one of the mountains in my hometown and when you get to the top of the climb there's another climb that goes on a gravel road so we just you know used to take this gravel road and sometimes we even took our road bikes and started to like go with a road bike on a single track inside inside a forest and like just checking like how look how we can like you know have this technique with no shocks and it's like very thin wheel and so on so we were kids but you know gravel was there always also in europe one of the most famous races in italy is actually a gravel race like most of the races on the gravel road yeah um and it's a classic uh, race i don't think i could make it that road looks brutal yeah um but it's just that it started to go onto um, a mainstream once the industry started to define uh, gravel bikes. So there's road bike and there's gravel yeah. bike. And 
Gravel bike basically opened um, an opportunity to get the sport of road cycling to be much more accessible. So gravel is uh, a great solution. You can go and ride distances because you literally ride on a road bike, but then it's like it has this traction because you have wider uh, rims and wider tires, and you can actually go and do some technical stuff with your bike. And you know, when you think about it, is one of the most you know, fun things to do. It's the most liberating thing I get to do. Exactly. It's my yoga. It's it's not even, you know, you don't have cars. Uh, I, I used to run a lot, like, because I, I used to be, like, after I moved out of Israel. When I moved to China, I was introduced to trail running, and I started to run ultras. And there was something in, in, in running trails that was missing from road cycling in particular, because it's the quiet, it's the nature it's the that yep. being in the zone um, that in road cycling is, it doesn't exist um, yeah, all the time. No. You have cars and you need yep. to be very concentrated and sometimes you ride with a group so it's very demanding and yeah. but gravel you just take your bike, you go on the in the nature and you can just ride you know wherever you want and just lose yourself in the nature. So it's it's gravel and e-bike. And let's just go through before I say goodbye because we mm-hmm. can talk forever, the, the brands. I, I love some of the stuff you've picked. You, you are my tastemaker, so I think you and Sharona can be the tastemaker for hundreds of thousands of, of to curate. So you've, you've introduced me to a post-Rafa world. Um, my favorite brands, I mean, I just trust whatever's on your site, I'm like trying. Um, I love... Pedalma. I just love the name and the attitude of it. I'm glad to hear it's from Australia. Um, it's hard for me to like anything German, uh, but uh, I love... What's the name of the brand that I like? It's yeah, very it's expensive. Bueller. It's one of yeah, my... Bueller. Like Ferris Bueller. It's yeah, exactly. Bueller. Yeah. But very comfortable. Very comfortable. Yeah. And then there's uh, ASOS or OSO? ASOS, what is the... yeah. ASOS is... Uh... Love their... Where are they? Swiss? ASOS is around uh, before Rafa. So if you're talking about premium cycling uh, kits that is uh, very slick, it's ASOS. ASOS actually started yeah. to bring, they were the first one that actually brought the black collar into cycling, which was which is very common now. We, we, we wear a lot of like dark clothes, which is... Yeah, I love black. Yeah. I do love black. What, uh, you introduced me to 100%. It's mm-hmm. the greatest high price i i don't care about price when i because it, it mixes fashion with tech mm-hmm. you know i call it fashionology i hate the word athleisure but um the 100 percent's ridiculous and the POC stuff is great too mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so how do you discover all this stuff is it how do you stay ahead of this curve i'm living in british you know every day so you know i i know all the brands basically i follow all of them um it's just you know it's also my hobby i just i i I like direct to consumer brands in fashion in general so i'm just you know i just know all of them so let's end with crashing i have only had one big crash i had a little one tiny one because uh, I was joking with Canute before, I was like, my next crash, whether it's on my Peloton or road bike, is my last crash, right? Like, it's just, I don't really think about it. You know, most of my close calls have just been an asshole driver. And that's why I'm so excited about gravel biking, because the roads here, you know, when it doesn't rain or when it's really, really dry forever, you know, it's just a lot of shit on the road. And so the wider tire surface 
is just like I'm a convert even for riding on the road with my gravel bike. And it just feels like I have less percentage, even it's probably just mental. Um, but it feels like I'm just safer, uh, not from cars, just from tipping uh, or falling because of a rock or a rut. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a big crash? I had a couple of big crashes. Um, not recently. Do you remember? I don't remember much. I remember one. I just remember because I fainted like uh, two minutes after. I just like I opened all my um, my chin was like scratching. Oh, so you went over the top, scratching the the, the asphalt. But I was very young. Um, don't remember um, a big crush uh, recently. Oh, good. I actually I crushed when I was running a few years ago. I crushed. I, I rolled like twenty stairs. It was in China. There is a lot of steps uh, in the mountains. You can go into a mountain, and instead of like a trail, there is actually steps, and that that's painful. I did that in coma. There's a lot of steps. Yeah, and uh, I had a little bit of a tumble, which is makes you just feel old. Well, anyways, this has been. Uh, I'm super excited about this. You know that because we talk all the time, and uh, it's endless. Endless possibilities because of tech and e-commerce. And, you know, I think what people need to understand here is it's not just that you're curating, it's you're solving this logistics problem for both sides, right? The, the customer needs to feel yeah. like they don't have to return back to France, like with the Cafe de Cyclist. How many brands do you think it could be that are good enough to get through? Is it 100? Is it 50? Like they could get through your stress test. The ideal will be 100. Um, there's a lot of room beyond just the clothes. So one of the things that we're actually starting to explore now is the exotic parts. Buying a stem or a a saddle or or a seat post that it's like super unique and light and made from handmade carbone in, in a workshop in Italy, that's something that probably the very... A hardcore cyclists know about. They see it on social media. They see it everywhere. But it's just a, you know, it's just a dream. You don't know how to get it. You, right. you need to go to a bike store to actually get this stuff. And you just need a place to actually go and be able to order it. And you know, these guys, they know how to make parts. They know how to make a great product. I think that's where we come in. We know how to sell products. We know how to present it, and we know the U.S. market, and we know e-commerce. Um, and that's yeah, very exciting. I mean, this is endless possibilities. Canute, what do you think? Interesting, right? Very, very interesting. Have it's, you ever? You're world... too tall to ride, but e-biking, I think you could do. I don't know. I yeah. And you don't care about fitness, so that's I've, I've ridden a lot. <laughs> or fashion. I'm, I'm just. I'm just. Wait a minute, natu- why are you I'm here? I'm just a naturally fit person. That's the. <laughs> oh my god, man! I miss playing golf with Canute. So it was always fun. You were you were tall. You managed the golf course well. You loved the game. The uh, well, dude, Nave, this was great. My pleasure. Um, I can't wait to see what we can do. I think there's like uh, there's all kinds of possibilities around what Rafa did around aggregating these brands and opening a couple boutiques or, or pop ups in in Soho. So we got a lot of work to do. Yep. Uh, how big's the team now? We are a team of four, and we just started um, the hiring process um, to expand the team. And now it's all about spreading the word. So everybody that listens to this, even if you know somebody that rides, trust me. Like I don't. This is not about uh, buying a stock or a, or a startup. Just start spreading the word. Dstnc.com distance trust. 
that Sharona and uh, Neve have curated the world down into one beautiful experience of media and Shopify. Um, this is this is the beginning of some massive trend in the software side, and eventually, uh, you know, the hardware side too, which I'm fascinated. With, but the software side, where the margins are of this biking kind of lifestyle and what you call the extreme, I think you saw what you call it, endurance, endurance lifestyle, endurance lifestyle. All right, my man, I can't wait to, you know, go uh, buy some stuff. Um, so it's dstnc.com. Yep. And uh, I, uh, I'm excited to see uh, uh, what you guys cook up. Uh, and thanks for coming on the pod. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Canute Howard. Not everything is about unicorns. Although I think if we're if we there are going to be some unicorns. We've seen it with um, Kith. Seen it with Lulu. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite with Rafa, but I think they're going to be a billion dollar kind of cycling brand, fashion brand. But you know, I finally get to dabble in fashionology. Something I've been talking about since the Oakley days. You know, it's not really tech, but it's just everything that I finally have come together. And we've been able to invest in this at, uh, and really kind of try building a full-on lifestyle brand. And I don't have to do the day-to-day. And they are a hilarious couple. And Neve's interesting, huh? Oh, yeah. He's just got the experience. He's got the eye. Mm-hmm. He's traveled the world. He knows the sport. And Sharona, man, she's a killer. She, uh, she just knows fashion and knows mm-hmm. she has an eye for, for culture. So, uh, so like I said, try it out. And if you have a friend that cycles... Just send them there. There is a ton to choose from, and it's just getting going. So the experience, you know, is not quite like uh, the back end experience. Will get better around packaging and everything, but right now they're aggregating, and it's just so easy to return stuff because of the way they've structured it. So uh, thanks for listening. This is Panic with Friends. You can search my name, Howard Lindzen. It's Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or Panic with Friends. Search it. Subscribe. You'll get a uh, podcast. Every Thursday, we talk to founders, we talk to venture capitalists, traders, investors, try and stay a little bit ahead of big trends. Thanks, Knut. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.